0: – Hey, PG. – Hey, Treves. What are you doing under the ding
1: Well, I noticed some sparks flying out the back during our podcast with David James.
0: Oh, wasn't that just our sparkling wit?
1: No. I think I found your sotty's roll in there.
0: Hello and welcome to the Ding Learning Podcast, where we invite people to talk about the things that make online learning awesome. Our guest for this episode is Emma Henry, a creative director and games designer who works with businesses to ensure that their software delivers positive learning experiences. Now Emma is currently a design consultant for EdTech Lobby, and her expertise in gamification gives her a laser insight into when learning design is failing to deliver the intended outcomes. And coincidentally, Emma is also a former student of Phil's, so look out for the moments where Emma recalls the things that have stayed with her from his teaching. And some of the key ding moments to watch out for in this episode are the need to get your sequencing right when designing an online learning experience and of accurately determining the point of the learning activity. Then there's the absolute necessity of defining the intended outcomes with no ambiguity before you actually start designing. And then the ways in which gamification can tap into long-held human behaviours, such as the desire to collect things and the opportunity to harness these potentials for learning. So without further ado, let's get on with the podcast. So, Emma, thank you very much for joining us today on the Dingometer. It's great to have you with us. Happy
2: to be here.
0: All right. So over the last few years, you've been involved in what looks like some really interesting work at the intersection of digital games design and education. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got Kaplan and you know, you've some companies since then. And you, you're currently the creative and digital design consultant for EdTech Lobby.
2: Yes.
0: And they, they state, and so I've obviously been doing my research on the, on the LinkedIn page, and they state quite provocatively that they're, the, they're disruptively breaking the borders of education. Which I think mm. is fascinating. So, can can you start start by telling us a bit about what you do at Tech Lobby and why you see the need to break the borders of education?
2: Well, I'm with me, because really, I think education by accident. I really didn't have any intention of it. My idea was I was going to rule you know, half of Western Europe being a game designer, <laughs> which is kind of what I'm doing. But um, so education was kind of something I really just fell into. You know, I work- I was working in games testing. I, I did stuff at like Microsoft, a little bit of PlayStation, I, for- I got independent um contractors and whatnot. And um, I really kind of just fell into the job at plan because, you know, they had their own idea to do a whole sort of, um, not just a game, they actually do the whole course you know, we use books and games and digital media in the classroom together and not just do it together as like. Because one of the things I find a lot with products that I see, because I get asked to review and give my opinion on those different educational kind of products. And I find a lot of the time it's either not for purpose or people just do it because they want to do it, because they can. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I like to call it the dog's bollocks, kind of, you know, why do dogs lick themselves? Because they can. Why have you built this virtual reality simulator? Blah, 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 blah. Why? Because you can. Not, does it actually fit the purpose of, the, of what you're trying to do? Does it actually teach? No. <laughs> and then of course, loads and loads of money, loads of money to invest, loads of money to build it, load, and then you want to sell it for a ridiculous amount, and schools go, no. So one of the things, you know, when I got into Catplan is the fact that, you know, they were creating this lovely product called Picaro, based on the Cambridge curriculum. The terms of everything they did in terms of the academics was great. I mean, you can never fault the amount of work, the detail that went into the academia behind it. To get Cambridge accreditation takes a lot of work. And I was asked to basically test their games. They had these lovely little games to go with it and have a look and make sure they worked there. I was like, okay. I was there for about... Ten minutes. When I looked, and I was like, "Yeah, these games are rubbish." And I was like, "What do you mean they're rubbish?" I was like, "They don't. They're not fun. They're not games. You're just basically taking a classroom activity and trying to do it digitally. Where's the fun? You know, where's the interaction? Why the students want to do this? You know, just to me, it was just boring. It was loads of stuff like you know, slotting in words into into places, which is fine." But it just wasn't fun. <laughs> so one of the things, so how I kind of got into education and gamification and whatnot was really there because they didn't know anything about it, and I was like, well, I'll do it for you. <laughs> so I kind of yeah, So that's why I ended up doing that. So in terms of where I am in edtech lobby, again, I just you know sit there and look at people's digital strategy, look at what they're doing, whether a it's something that actually works with you know with their vision, their goal. Whether what they're doing actually is working, because a lot of the time there's yeah you know, sometimes it's something very very simple that's just not working or not getting a message across. Or it can just be like they've, came, they've gone completely off track and I'm just like, no, I have to sort of reel them in. You know, a lot of my job is sort of like people floating off and I'm sort of grabbing them. A lot of my time is spent just sort of like people have got these, you know, ideas and I'm like, yeah, great idea. Great, great, great. How are you, you going to pay for it in your budget? And then like, if you do create it, you've got to find a market for it, especially with education because, you know, it's so varied about, you know, you know, one of the things I've done with Picker, we have worked with. I think it's 59 countries, you know, and we worked everywhere from the Middle East to China, Japan, South America, pretty much everywhere apart from probably North, North America, we worked in. And the difference in education systems in terms of, you know, A, how they're run and, and, you know, and, you know, the academic behind it. Then also, you know, in terms of like just funding, for example, South America, for example, they've got, you know, they're really on it with technology. You know, they've got a program where every child has an eye, has a tablet, for example. However, you get a lot of people. You know, a lot of children, yeah, they've got tablets, but then they're often in a building with no electricity, or you know, or somewhere like China, where they, obviously they're really on it. But depending on what school, if it's like a state run school, it's you know 60 kids per classroom, yeah, they often do like working from like eight o'clock in the morning, they don't often finish you know, their homework to like nine and nine at night, and then they do the same thing over and over again, and they do it six, six seven days a week. But then, you know, so you've got that scenario, but you've also got the private schools as well. And, you know, you can't really cater to, you can't really sit there and target your product just at, like, you know, the top end of the market, because you'll get a couple of the private schools who will go through it. Yeah, we'll buy it. We've got the money, da, da, But the, mo- the main bulk of your product will be for military education deals. And they're the ones who will, you know, roll out their pilot across all their sort of state schools and, also in, you know, the more private schools as well who, you know, private or smaller schools, after school clubs and so on and so forth. So, again, in terms of what I do, just make sure that people know, you know, basically just they know what they're doing. And I sit there and just make sure, you know, to go through, their whole digital strategy make sure they know what they're doing make sure they're meeting the right markets right targets a lot of the time i'm sitting there saying before this before that a lot of my time i'm sitting there going through something and i i pick holes
1: sort of gamification of things you know the idea of gamifying education which for some people can feel like sort of yes eureka that'll get the young people involved or yes this is a I mean, there is a core concept there that is good. It's about sort of upping the interactions. It's about stopping learning being passive. Have you got any sort of golden rules or any any observations around the best and worst of gamification? So what does it mean to you uh, when you see see that term and you hear educators, you know, talking about it? Does your heart sink a bit like, oh, I know what that means. It's a quiz. Or do you go, yes, that's exciting because?
2: Well, um, oh, gosh, i can give some examples of this one. Um, I think what it is, people seem to un- don't understand what gamification is. People hear gamification, they think, I'll put a game in it, I'll put a leaderboard in it. And I'm like, no, that's not what gamification is. You know, people seem to understand, I well, don't seem to understand the core aspect of it, is taking game elements, the game tools, and putting it into something putting it into a scenario to get, you know, what you want. I mean, to start off with, you need to establish what it is you want. <laughs> you know, you need to understand what it is, you know, what, what, what do you want to gain from this? Why do you want to gamify it? What, what aspects of it needs, you know, needs that engagement? Um, you know, so I mean, you know, one of the examples I always use is like Costa Coffee versus Starbucks, you know they have, you know, points cards is a form of gamification. Very, very simple one, but it's a very simple premise. You collect points, you can level up, like go different levels. And once you get a certain amount of points, you can get a coffee or a cake or whatever you want. And the reason why they do that is because they want to sit there and make you choose between which one. You know, if you have a, co- you know, if you've got a Costa Coffee and Starbucks next to each other, and one of you has a card for Costa Coffee, they're more likely to go and recommend that. Oh, I've got points on there. We'll go towards that. And in terms of like a game, if you want to sit there and gamify that, you imagine you're collecting points from the evil barista, and then once you've got enough points, you can use those points to spend and rescue a piece of carrot cake from the evil barista behind the counter. And you've achieved, achieved your objective. Similar objective to something like Super Mario, where you go through each world, you collect your coins, collect your points the dirt, you reach the end about, you, you fight Bowser, and you,
1: you get the princess at the end of it. In a way, it's the, um, it's the quest idea right the the quest to get the coffee from starbucks you know those that games that are built around those um ideas of collecting because it feels to me because you know i'm not a gamer i never i've never got the habit i never have been you know which is why i could always be so cross with you lot when there was a deadline a new game came out and nobody did any work and i'd always know it was because you were too busy you know doing that but i think that the things i understand about it because you know when i was small um people used to collect scented erasers people used to collect the strawberry shortcake dolls people used to collect so collecting and amassing and then once you get this you can get this play set once you get that playset, you get a bigger play set that yeah. well, gaming hasn't come along and sort of given anything new to people it's pr- it's provided another way to sort of fulfill those human functions of questing collecting amassing banking and then moving things on and collect that is that Am I am I an old man talking, or does that seem reasonable?
2: No, you're actually you're yeah exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it is. With gaming, you've got your different player types. You've got people who like to collect things. You've got people who like you know to so collect stores. You've got people who like to just like rosy on through it. You've got some people who are into like making sure they get like all their kudos. They get like all the badges. They want to find every little bit. People just want to sit there and do the journey, you know, and explore. So it's all about you know, you know explorers your collectors and so on and so forth. And, you know, in a game, you also have like your destroyers who want to sit there and just kill
1: everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I've taught a few of those. So, yeah.
2: that, exactly, of games haven't really you know, made anything new. We are just sitting there, just, you know, making it a bit more digital, a bit, maybe a bit more fun. I mean, for me, for the most important part of gamification is making it fun. Yeah, you because know, for me, me personally, the thing that always resonates with me is humour. You know, most things in terms of like learning or whatnot, try and make it a bit fun, add some yeah. humour now because that's how people remember things. Some people remember things through songs and whatnot, or poetry. I remember things through humour.
0: So what would you say, in terms of learning, what are, the, what are the most powerful aspects of gamification or the most powerful levers of gamification that you've seen used well in, in learning games or learning devices or learning apps?
2: I think like, one of the, the best ones I've, I've seen out there is probably Pokemon Go. Especially when that first came out, everybody went nuts for it. And when you think about it, it's actually quite a simple concept. All you're doing is collecting all the hundreds of Pokemon. And
1: that's, that's why, that, that's why I asked the question about gamification, because I think it's the secret to learning design, the secret to figuring out why people would be motivated to continue on a quest or a learning journey, whatever it is. It is something around collecting and amassing of itself, in itself, is something that resonates very strongly with us. And sort of Pokemon goes that classic example, really. You know, it was just going out on your phone. Of course, there was all this stuff about, yes, it's making people do their steps and they're exercising. And it had all this secondary gain. But essentially, it was because there was something self motivating and fascinating about collecting and amassing and being rewarded by seeing by looking looking in your bag and seeing your gold coins or looking in your bag and seeing your you know your spell potions all of those things mm. there is something about that that doesn't get old that we don't mm. grow out of and that that's why I was interested in gamification because it feels to me like an old concept yeah. that gets brought to people as a something to do with technology and mm. all technology does is find ways to to to, to touch that spot on you again
2: Exactly. I mean, that like Pokemon Go essentially like, po- play, uh, collecting Pokemon cards back in the nineties, late late nineties, is exactly the same aspect. You know, you've got to sit there, collect your shinies, get your shiny Charizard. You know, collect your collection. The the Pokemon Go sort of enhanced that by sitting there. You know, because part of the game gamification, you've got to think about what your objective is. I mean, one of the things that you're saying about people collecting their steps. Pokemon Go actively in, not only has to encourage that, but it's actually part of the game. Like for example, you've got eggs that you need to hatch and you could be like a, it could be a rare Pokemon that you really need to cut uh, to your collection or it could be just a normal one, but you have no idea. But in order to do that, you've got a walk, like I think you've got two kilometer egg, no, five kilometre eggs two kilometer eggs and ten kilometre eggs and whatnot and you have to, you know you can't you know you can sort of cheat if you want to but you know in order to do that you know you know in order to you know get the chance of collecting that rare Pokemon you might have in that egg, you've got to do your steps. And that is, you know, this is why I've always used and Pokemon Go as a brilliant um example of gamification. Really wish I was working on it. Ask <laughs> okay, well, me to work on it. <laughs> One looking like damn
0: it.
1: <laughs> Interesting you started off by saying that you're originally you were sort of the the fun ometer so you were brought in you know you, to you know there was a a set of games so called mm-hmm. set up and you looked at them and you went yeah you can call it a game mate but this isn't any fun and but now <laughs> it feels like you're also bringing the kind of the pragmatism the financial common sense and you're making sure that what the, the the people who are blue sky thinking about something extraordinary that they're actually able to imagine it into in a market and working and being sustainable because i imagine We've had a few conversations with some sort of people in the past where there are certain words that get people very excited. So sort of augmented reality VR yeah. headsets, this yeah. idea of the classroom being kind of like a, you know, your own planetarium, you know, holograms, whatever it is. And of course, teachers eyes light up and everyone else lights up about it. And then I assume that your job is to burst that balloon sometimes, is it?
2: Yeah, I'm pretty much, I'm like the sort of wave, <laughs> the wave, I just, I, just cr- I, I crash in. So and if you, oh, so I just,
1: just ask you then, in that scenario, so imagine that Tony and I were sort of like coming at you with this blue sky idea and we had this idea about how we could revolutionise the classroom and augmented reality and we had all this idea and we wanted, blah, what would be the first sort of conversations you'd want to have around uh, to sort of put the brakes around that, or to sort of to give good and wise counsel, how would you how would you cope with us if we bundled in like that? Come on, we've got this idea.
2: Oh, uh, well, from what, i asked ask what the purpose is, you know, yeah, you know, yeah, you want virtuality you I kind of sort of, okay, but why do you want it? what's the purpose of the product that, you're, that you want, you know, you, you want to make, you know, is it to teach English, is it to teach sign language, is it to show people about the planets or whatnot? I'll first ask about that and then, you know, once I understand you know, where you're coming from, what in terms of the academics or what actually your objective is, I sit there and go, okay, what kind of budget are we looking for and that sort of thing and the technology behind it as well. One of the things because I get the VR thing all the time. Oh, we want to sit there and make our product in the VR, and da da, 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 And I'm just like, yeah, VR's great, but you've got to think of like technology moves so fast that anything, you know, something that, you know, like Oculus Rift, whatever, you, you know, whatever the um, version they've got out right now is great. But then in six months to a year, they could have a completely new headset out and then like your school has completely change everything. And can the school sustain that? I mean, all like, well, the technology you're planning to build it on, how future-proof is that? But nothing is future-proof. And, you know, because I, you know, working out, one of things I do work with, um, I pick right products was mostly in the app development as well. App development was the bane of my life. I was always sitting there trying to think, like, okay, guys, I want, you know, I don't want something that's going to be fine for six months. I need something that's going to be fine for at least two to three years minimum, which is, you know, notoriously difficult. Um, So I need to know, you know, so you need to sit there and think, whatever you're building, will that be, you know, will that still be viable in a couple of years' time? You don't want to have a scenario and everyone's got to completely change everything over.
1: Out of interest, what does a viable VR or AR project look like for a school, really? I mean, in, in, in your experience, has, has there been any viable um, examples as, that have come across your desk, for example? Have you ever said, yes, that's the perfect uh, pedagogic use of VR. That's brilliant. Let's do that. Let's have a virtual classroom. What, what's, what's been your experience on viable projects like that?
2: I mean, I've seen quite a few good ones. I, I quite often go to the um, Bet Show, and the Bet Show is really good to find out that things like that as well. And I also go to um, Frankfurt Book Fair, which I know it's Book Fair, you think, well, going to be there, but you do find a lot of different products and they have like a whole technology section there. So I do see, and I've seen really good stuff, but they're really, really expensive. They're catered for the top market of you know, private schools. You want something that's, you know, available to everyone, you know, despite budget. So, I mean, in terms of something that I've seen in a range of all budgets, I haven't really seen anything. I would go, if someone really wanted something like that, I would go more into AR rather than VR, because at least with AR, you can do it on your phone. Everyone can get a hold of a, you know, a Samsung phone for £100 or whatnot, which I know is still expensive for a school, but it's more viable than buying, I don't know, 200 oculus rift headsets and then you know <laughs> then you've got to find like two years time oh you've got a place all those i mean for me in terms of like i'm not so i'm not so much into ar and vr i'm more sort of digital skills that's more where i feel the future is in terms of how you know in terms of teaching and so on and so forth you know the digital skills coding that sort of area that's where i think the future needs to be in and i've you know i know it's something that's coming um into uk schools but it needs to come in faster so for me it's just that you know teaching them young the digital skills teaching them young that's for me where it is
0: there's quote on your again on your quote on your linkedin company page It says that you take uh, academically strong and purposeful learning tools into global markets now that's quite a mouthful and you've covered some of this already but but for for a digital learning tool to be academically strong and purposeful what, what does that mean? Like what, is, what does that look like if something is academically strong and purposeful? Like can you give an example of something like that? Or if you're evaluating it, what would make you go, ding, that, that's a cracking tool?
2: I mean, for me, for, before I look at any tool, I always, are, I always try and look at, you know, see if I can access the white paper. Which is the academic backbone, what you're trying to look at, and like always look, you know, see where that's come from. One of the strengths that I had working on the Picaro product is that um, not only was it um, aligned with the Cambridge syllabus, but the Cambridge syllabus can pretty much slot itself into other different um, countries' syllabuses around the world. So it's quite easy to mix, mix and match because not only was it um, applying to the Cambridge on Exam, the YLE, it was also um, aligned to the Common European Framework and other such ones as well so it was quite easy to slot it in kind of like a lego set (laughs) the way i always describe that product so but the only reason you could do that and take it apart like that i could slot it into another curriculum or another school and suit their purpose suit their budget was because of the curriculum the backbone.
0: that's super interesting because that that talks to a lot of the stuff that i've read and and my experience around you know the the sheer quantity of, of tools that are used for learning that aren't often designed with learning in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what you're saying is that sustainability is important and looking at the the kind of the the academic rigour I suppose underneath mm-hmm. that or how, how easy is it to to use in a range of contexts how easy is it to adapt and evolve I imagine that all those tools are in the minority because there's, there's kind of a whole range of tools that you can use for learning, but actually th- they're just often designed because, like you say, people just want to design a great tool. They don't exactly. really think about it in the context of the curriculum. Is that, is that a generalization or is that, is that fair to say?
2: I think it's fair to say. Most of my experience is with language learning. And a good example I like to use, or well, a couple of examples, is that like the Duolingo app very very popular and it's really good to get a couple of phrases in it both you can learn a language in x amount of days da, da. when you actually look into the academia of it and how it actually teaches English it's not that great but you know but because you know it's a flashy app you get some bits for free that da, 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 everyone goes for it and it's quite commercially available and people are more likely to sort of like go for that one rather than invest in a whole course because they think oh of course it's going to be long da, 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 da. But, but that's just, it's not because the course is it's, it's how it's taught in order to get to D, you have to go to A, B, C first. You can't go from A to D without going for the other two steps, unfortunately. If you try and skip those steps, that scaffolding or whatnot, you, it's, it's going to fall apart.
0: It strikes me that there's, there's a huge amount of um, software vendors out there creating apps, You know, and there's probably millions of apps on the App Store and the Google Play Store that, that are sort of targeted at education, but mm. they haven't necessarily got any or very little intellectual rigor behind them. I mean, mm. what... what what would you do in that situation if you come across a vendor and you say, like, how do you how do you help them get on the right track, or how do you help them get more impact with their with their product to, to connect it more effectively? What sort of advice would you give them?
2: Well, again, it's just you know, foundations are the most important thing. You can make things look as flashy and you know, put all this technology behind it, and make it all cool and funny hip hop music, da da da, and you want. But at the end of the day, if you don't have strong foundations to work on, it's just going to collapse so for me you know if someone came to me they uh, say Duolingo came up to me and said you know you know okay my app we're making more education you know I would sit there and actually just go through the foundations of what I started with.
0: And what do you mean by foundations like specifically what are you looking for?
2: In terms of their foundations for example I'll just go through you know all their all their content I would forget I, I wouldn't look at the app I would actually ask you know someone showed me the Word documents and all their content, where it's all based off of.
1: For you, your strategy would be, and is, um, this all looks very nice, but mm-hmm. can you just give me some paper with your modules on, or with your content on, because yeah. I, I just need to see if the sequencing is right. I need to see if the flow from point A to point B to point C is, is logical, that, that yeah. no, no steps have been missed out. So
2: exactly. for you, it's
1: a paper exercise. It, you know, You've got all the tech but actually, you're kind of trying to look behind the tech and yeah. get hold of the course design, the, the sort of the written word, the building blocks. That's the bit that, that if that's not right, there is you can build all that other stuff on top. Yeah. But essentially, you're just building a castle in the air otherwise. Right.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think you Well, I still remember this. Bill, one of the lovely phrases you put to me once, you know, you can't push a turd. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm sure I said many profound and important (laughs) things in my time, but the fact that you remember me saying you can't polish a turd, that brings me, um, I don't know, Tony, (laughs) strike that from the podcast. Strike it. Yeah, exactly. But you're absolutely right. You can't. Um, And the funny thing is, is that everybody knows that really. Mm -hmm. So would you say that, um, would you say, this is a generalisation, so it won't be true in in all cases, but would you say that, that often you're dealing with people whose interest is in the technology and their interest in the technology and finding a market for it takes them to education, when in fact that emphasis is the wrong way around. It sort of, um, you know, so education feels like a marketable place to, to launch a product, but actually that emphasis for you is, is the wrong emphasis.
2: Yeah, it depends really who's sort of running it. You know, because I usually, like, when I do talk, I usually talk to the CEO. And, it, and sometimes it's interesting to find the background of the CEO, where they come from. You know, if they're quite academically focused, you'll find that, that you know, the background of the is fine. But, you know, I've dealt with CEOs who come from marketing. I've dealt with CEOs who come from um, sales. I've dealt with CEOs who, you know, basically worked in law, <laughs> you know, and they've decided to go into educational, create an app, blah, blah, blah. And you know, dep- you know, it depends really where their background comes from. That's where their focus comes from because it's what they it kind of sticks what they know.
0: I suppose just just to round this off then, really, what what would you say are your products to watch, or maybe areas to watch? What do you think is uh, partly in response to the coronavirus pandemic, but partly just generally on the emerging trends in edtech at the moment? What do you think we're going to see more of over the next sort of six to twelve months?
2: Um, definitely um, stuff to do, like I said before, with digital skills. Digital skills should be on the same part as English and maths in terms of learning. So you're talking
1: about literacy, digital literacy, that, that everybody should be literate in that respect. And it's, you've, got your, you've got your arithmetic, you've got your writing, mm-hmm. but now you've got to have your digital literacy. That's got to be a basic.
2: Yeah, exactly. And not just in children, in adults, in adults as well. But I still think there's definitely still a market for the blended approach. The You know, so sort of like using a combination of books and technology because I get me wrong, I love technology, I'm always on it, but I still need paper, I still need a book in front of me, I still need to be able to write stuff down, you know, cause I, I mean, one of the things I'm worried about that everyone's going to go completely digital and, you know, sort of lose the sort of, like I mean, that of like people have come to me saying that, you know, they need stuff for phonics, and stuff, for example, and handwriting practice because kids just don't use, don't write anymore, they just type it on the computer. Yeah. You know, the amount, of, the amount of kids who have got terrible handwriting or can't you know, but string a sentence together on paper is ridiculous. So you know, the you know blended learning and you know that sort of thing is definitely to look out for. And I think also there needs to be, and I think it's going to be more focused on special educational needs, mm-hmm. because especially in like I don't know, like especially countries like, for example, the UAE and the Middle East. They've put in a lot of money into actually. Um, into special occasional needs to make it more sort of prominent to teach more about it and so so forth so i think there needs to be there is there needs to be and there will be a lot more focus on that as well
0: emma thanks so much it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today and it's just to, to hear more about your experience and your views in this area it's, it's been an absolute privilege thank you